0: Welcome to this podcast in how to create a regenerative world. And today I'm so lucky to have the guest of Purnima Lutra here. My name is Chris and I will take you through a short 30 minutes with people who really want to contribute to a more regenerative world. Our guest today, Purnima Lutra, is a well-known TEDx speaker. She's an associate professor at Copenhagen Business School, an author of now three books, and a strong activist for Equality for All. I'm really, really looking forward to have you here with us, uh, Purnima. And she's also a strong believer in the power of positive change and influence through her education. And I've been the fortunate person to be able to contribute to many of our books and read her works. And I'm really looking forward to dig a bit deeper into that. And we've also been working together on several occasions. So welcome, Purnima. It's so nice to have you here.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for being a part of my work as well. It's always such a pleasure to work with you and thank you for having me on this uh, podcast.
0: Great, Uh, and I'm uh, really kind of looking forward to actually get some time to really get to know you. So my first question is like, you're doing so much great for others and for the world out there. What actually sparks your fire and how do you keep up all of this hard work for a better
1: world basically? That's such a great question, and I've always been an educator at heart. Um, My mom and dad tell me that when I was a little girl, I would uh, teach my teddy bears and convince my little sister to sit in front of me, and and I would teach. I would teach whatever I knew, uh, whether it was writing or alphabets or basic math. Um, So education for me has been a part of my life and who I am as an individual for as long as I can remember. And very early on in my life, I decided that um, education was indeed the pathway that I wanted to get into, and particularly tertiary education, so teaching at university level. Uh, I was fortunate to have uh, a father. My father is a, a retired as a university professor, so I could see the influence that he had on his students. And so that really shaped who um, I am. My mom was also an educator, and so uh, other members within my family. So I I grew up in a family of educators and really felt that uh, that was the pathway for me. Um, Now, when it comes to education, uh, it wasn't just about transferring knowledge, right? And uh, and that's a very kind of traditional way of looking at education. But for me, it's really about lighting the spark in people to look at things differently, uh, to open their minds. I get a real thrill and rush when I see people having those aha moments, you know, when they suddenly realize, oh gosh, I hadn't thought of this before, or this is something new for me. Um, so whether I'm doing, uh, you know, my classes at university at CBS, or I'm with uh, undergraduate students, or master's students or even executive level uh, or if I'm in a workshop with leaders in companies or boards um, or employees uh, it's the same because at the end of the day education is really about a two-way dialogue between uh, workshop participants students in a lecture theater and me as an instructor as a facilitator so I see myself more as that facilitator of knowledge um, that we're exchanging and co-creating this knowledge Uh, But it's really I'm hoping that through my work, I'm able to inspire people to look at the world differently, to look at themselves differently, to form new connections in their brain. Um, And that's really what really drives me. But but you're right. This work is hard, especially in the space of diversity, equity.
0: Um, (laughs) Yeah, there
1: are days when you come home and you want to you just want to sit for a moment and just have a cup of tea because it's been one of those days. And um, and so there are tough moments and there are moments where you want to bang your head against the wall because you feel like you've taken two steps forward and six steps back. So there are all of those days, but there are also in, in, amazing mm. days when things go really well and people have so many aha moments in just a three-hour workshop or even a one-hour keynote. Um, and you know that the audience is engaged with you. I think that's what I love and that's what I I think it really drives me. I get an adrenaline rush. You know, people get adrenaline rushes from different things. For me, it's that that when I connect with my <laughs> audience and I see that they're engaged with me and they're, there's a lot of neurons firing off in their brain. Uh, oh, I love that feeling. I just know that they're 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 thinking about things differently. They're questioning the way things have been done um, in their lives and how they look at things and how they do things and how their organization is and those are those are fantastic moments so i keep going back to that but i also do a lot of self care because in this line of work you can't not self care for me it's uh it's yoga it's meditation it's a lot of deep breathing um and and <laughs> you those quiet moments to reflect yeah and recharge yeah
0: yeah, yeah. I'm just kind of uh, uh, also thinking uh, that maybe I want to take another class or another master's when you are talking about like being so engaged and actually seeing the importance in lighting people's fires and igniting uh, neurons and stuff. But like, The experience for me tells that there's a lot of teacher educators out there that doesn't care anything about that. What would be your advice to the boring teachers out there?
1: Uh, um, You know, we need all sorts of teachers. We need educators who help us learn those basic concepts. And I guess I'm fortunate that I've chosen a line of work where it is a topic that is so engaging for people. There's a curiosity in my students. Um, as they come into my classroom as well. Um, But I don't believe that there are necessarily boring educators. I think sometimes subject matter can be such that it can seem boring to the student. Um, But really, I think students really thrive in environments where educators are passionate. And I think it's about letting Mm. your passion come through. Uh, Even if the subject matter is something that, you know, you might think is dry, um, I've been challenged this time with a new course at CBS that is a relatively dry course um, and has mm. historically not had very good uh, student ratings. Uh, and so I've had a challenge this time to lift a course, and it's been a really nice journey uh, in a subject matter that has nothing to do with diversity, equity, inclusion. It's a more broader course within labor market. And so, you know, it's been a nice challenge, but also I think, yeah. I, I think students can see when educators are passionate. And I think if you know your content well and you can make it alive, um, yeah, I think, you know, the way I look at education is, you know, students need to be curious when they come into your classroom. You need to be able to fuel their curiosity with knowledge and with information and interventions. And they need to leave the classroom wanting more. And I think if you follow this formula Mm. uh, of education, I think no matter what the subject matter is, you can bring it to life and use interventions yeah. that are unconventional to that style of teaching, maybe, or that subject matter um, and, and spur curiosity.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good advice and maybe more political than me, but I would say there's no boring topic. It's only boring teachers, but you're uh, angling it in a different way. So you're saying maybe they haven't found what they're really passionate about. So if people are today maybe either working within or educating or like finding that their life are a bit boring, how do, did you go away to kind of find your passion and how would you advise others to go and find their passion basically?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And you know, everyone is so different, right? And everyone has to find that your reason for existence, your why, right? Right. And for me, a lot of that comes from my own personal experiences through my life. I am a woman of color. um, And yes, I have plenty of privilege. Um, I I have been very fortunate to have uh, experiences in my life, thanks to some of the efforts that my parents made um, to provide those opportunities for me. I've also had opportunities in terms of education that have given me significant privileges. And I'm very conscious of those privileges that I have. But I'm also a woman of color. And despite those wonderful privileges that I hold, I have also had many experiences in my life where I have been discriminated, where I have felt bias, where I've uh, experienced microaggressions uh, right from being a child, right? So they're very, very deep impressions in me. And I think all of those have have spurred me to get into the pathway that I've chosen. I the pathway wasn't obvious. I you know when I was 18 years old, there were really only three options for a possible edu- you know further education. You either had to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, right? And I don't like the sight of blood or the thought of cutting someone up uh, with a scalpel. Certainly isn't something that gets me excited in the morning. <laughs> so I clearly didn't want to mm. be a doctor. Um, I. I'm not great at arguing for the sake of arguing. So a lawyer was also out for me. Um, and so engineering... I can hear is... that
0: with a lot of the political... <laughs> yeah. uh, and that, I that... can hear that a bit with the political answers.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, it's the family, right? So I was, I'm born into a South Asian family, an Indian family. Um, there are certain career paths that are thought of as being prestigious career paths. And these are the three that are really available uh, or at least mm. were available at that time for me. And of course, things mm. are looking different today. Um, but at that time, you know, when I was 18, that, those were the three pathways. And I was good at math. I yeah. was good at physics. So it made sense for me to do engineering. So, you know, to to the listeners out there as well, you know, uh, my my pathway or my passion in DI work wasn't an obvious one and it didn't come from the get go, I have not always wanted to be in this. I actually wanted to study HR. I wanted to study, get into the business field, but that wasn't seen as a lucrative career, a prestigious career or uh, an undergrad for an undergraduate degree. And so I went down the pathway of doing an engineering degree. I was possibly not very miserable, but miserable enough uh, during that time. (laughs) But I was also one of maybe 15 women out of a cohort of about 300 students um none of the instructors mm. looked like me in every tutorial group i was often the only woman when we had to mm. solder things together or do something that was more hands on i would have my male peers tell me that oh i'm sure you don't want to spoil your nails let me do it for you now what they hadn't realized was that my dad being who he was and is he had taught me everything that I needed to know. I could solder better than them, but the gender biases that were there were that oh come on, she's a girl, she's a woman. Why on earth would she want to spoil her, name soldier, uh, her nails soldering? And so I experienced those biases mm. that actually, and I could not see any role models. Right when I looked at big companies at the time in, in you know in the early nineties or yeah mid nineties, you know I couldn't see anyone around me who was who looked like me? Who could be someone that I would aspire to be one day in a more technical uh, or in the STEM industries? I just couldn't see myself, mm. and so I, put, mm. I, I, you know, I followed through with the four years. And but by the end of it, you know, um, I decided that you know this was not for me. And I think my parents saw that at that time. Um, and and you know, I made my way towards pursuing a PhD eventually in 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 more of the areas that I felt that I was, I could connect with uh, much more deeply. Um, And that was really the pathway. So my pathway to this hasn't been a straight line path. And um, I I would, my advice is for those who are seeking out their passion is um, explore, you know, learn, you know, go deeper, ask your questions to yourself about why you want to do what you want to do. What Hmm. is it that drives you? What are your values that are so important to you? Um, And I think that that really helps us all discover uh, that passion um, so that we can show up every day with that that drive.
0: Yeah, I like that. And uh, to me, you're kind of basically um, uh, answering the question like, Sorry, that's my Alexa. That I want to be a part of this conversation. <laughs> uh, no, uh, you're basically addressing the question, what has life uh, taught you to give back, basically. And then you're addressing, us uh, talking a bit about post-traumatic stress. I, One of the reasons why I speak in front of a lot of people today is that my uh, childhood teacher said to me, you're never going to be able to uh, stand in front of people and uh, speak because I was read as a tomato, I was stuttering and I was just kind of reading the notes but then there was like something in me that like hell no, I'm going to actually prove you wrong. And then also the passion when it comes to diversity and inclusion has come from being discriminated as a gay person, uh, really being beaten up to the ground and with a concussion, like seeing firsthand how people can treat people because they're so different that I don't wish it on anybody else. But my question to you here is, do you think, that in order to be able to be really passionate about something, you had need to kind of experience hardship within the same field or kind of thing. Do you think it's a prerequisite, basically, the, almost?
1: I don't know if it is for all areas, um, but I do feel like within the diversity, equity, inclusion space, I think you have to you have to experience some degree of it to show up in a way that is truly empathetic to others and you know in this line of work I mean it depends if you want to be an ally you don't necessarily have to have gone through it Um, right so you want to show up as an ally and everyone should for others right for anyone who's underrepresented we all need to be allies but if you want to be a DEI advocate if you want to work within this space I think To some extent, you have to have gone through those experiences in a very, very deep way uh, where it touches you. Um, But you also have to have healed from those experiences, because if you need to do this work, um, you need to have also gone through that process of healing from it, without which it can be quite raw and sometimes triggering when you're up on stage or when you're engaging (laughs) with people Someone can ask a question that can be so triggering to a personal experience that you've had. And it can be very emotional at that time. So you have to go through that process of healing first. Um, But I do believe that, Mm. you know, I, I mean, I think we should all be DI advocates, right? And we should all be allies. And so this should be in no way a message that, oh, you need to have gone through something drastic to be able to do it. But if you have that experience and you're healed from it, use that. Learning to really, really yeah. propel you to be able to empathize with with someone else's experience, right? So, Chris, your experience that you just narrated so so courageously to us is not an experience that I've had. I've been privileged to not be, have been in that situation, but at the same time, the kind of experiences that I myself have had with discrimination give me the ability to at least imagine for a moment what that must feel like, right? And I can't understand it fully because I am not you and our identities, our intersectional identities are different. But because Mm. I've gone through such experiences before, I can then show up with that level of empathy to listen, to humbly acknowledge, to have that curiosity to learn from you um, in a way that I don't think you necessarily can if you haven't that and it takes a lot more right it takes a lot more about from people who haven't necessarily had those experiences so how do we tap into I, I actually believe that the ma- m- vast majority of people actually have some experiences of bias or discrimination at some point in their life <laughs> that Can tap into they may Definitely. not be as clear as the experiences yeah. of others um, but we can tap into that to, to get those emotions mm. of empathy uh, mm. to come out
0: mm. And I think it's so important that it uh, doesn't become a competition in severeness because to you, it can still feel like if it's a small thing, it can feel a bit detrimental. And one sentence can be equally bad as like a a whole period of something. So I think it's, and what you say so beautifully, diversity and inclusion is about everyone. What actually made me lose a bit of motivation to work with DNI was that we constantly only talk about the minorities and how bad the situation is and how much discrimination, I like really watering the bad behaviours and the shit in the world, if I can uh, be allowed to say that, and then not kind of getting everybody on board because it's, to me, all about the majority and it's every one of us, all single human person on the planet is a part of diversity and inclusion because we're all unique in some small or big ways and we have all probably felt a lack of belonging, feeling that we're outside the group, that we don't have the right humor, that we're not dressed in the right way or like we can't be ourselves and authentically selves fully. So I think it's so important the thing you are saying that this is for everyone, and I wish for a world where we have more focus on creating a world where everybody thrives uh, instead of like just fixing the minority game because that's like a, a just given thing we should fix. But then it's about making everybody thrive in the world and be themselves and so on. Yeah, so and really love that. Work-
1: that- a lot of my work goes within that space of really that intersection um, and getting everybody on board, right? I mean, the the latest book that I've written, The Art of Active Allyship, is really about that. It's about ensuring that everybody comes on board. And as I write, you know, there's a lot of fear in DI work, um, fear the majority has of saying and confronting, fear of losing power, and 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 that 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 just that fear of just not knowing right? what is the ambiguity around, what does this mean for me, right? And I have to give up my space. Um, On the other side, there's also fear with the underrepresented, marginalized or discriminated because there's a lot of fear there and what happens when I bring up instances of bias and discrimination? Am I gonna be gaslit? Is someone going to tell me that my experiences are not valid? Are they going to minimize or trivialize what I'm experiencing? Um, are they going mm. to consequences to my career, to progression in the organization, right? There's a lot of fear in this space. Um, so we really need to address this. And the best way of handling fear is through knowledge, right? And so how do we give yeah. people the tools to be able to, the education, the tools and the, and the information around this, the vocabulary around this? So that we can then lift ourselves so that everybody does their part because we can't move the needle. The reason we're here in 2022 where we're still struggling with the things that we were struggling with in the 1960s and 70s is simply because everybody's not on board. And so we need to equip people. We need to empower people. We also need to have empathy that all of us are biased. We've all you, you know taken decades of lathering on biases on ourselves through social conditioning. And yeah. so it takes time. It takes time for us to unpack that bias. And we have to have empathy, I think, with with giving people space to do that, but also creating psychologically safe spaces where people can unpack their biases in a safe space, right? And of course, there's no room for very serious things like racism, sexism, homophobia, Uh, Very extreme cases need to be dealt with, you know, in in the way that the organization or society deems as appropriate. But when it comes to those micro behaviors, those day to day things, I think there's a lot that we can do. And the vast majority of bias and discrimination exists there. It's the day to day things, Mm. And that's where we need everybody on board. You're spot on. We do need everyone on board. We need everyone to step up to be the ally and not the bystander to be the active ally. Um, And that's a lot of the work that I do is hopefully in empowering uh, each other, you know, to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I also think uh, you're addressing something important because I think fear is standing in the way for real progress within diversity and inclusion. And being kind of a LGBTQIA plus community member or feeling a belonging to that community, makes it me, and it's maybe also uh, me as a person. I'm not afraid to talk about anything. I'm not afraid of being cancelled, gaslighting, whatever. I don't care. It's my opinion. And like, uh, I think that the conversation is more important to move us forward than the fear stopping us to actually um, need to be perfect before we talk. But uh, to all those out there, how can we get rid of that fear and make it a bit more simple, open, less dangerous to talk about these sensitive things. And why have we made them so sensitive?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I in my book I talk about this idea that, you know, the pendulum has been stuck in one position uh for far too long. And now we want to move the pendulum to a place where there's more inclusion. And an inclusion for intersectional identities, right? And that can feel uncomfortable. Right. So in this period of discomfort, It can feel like it's like we're walking on eggshells. It can feel like there's a lot of discomfort. It can feel like I have to let go of my power and my space that I have enjoyed occupying. And that can feel very, very uncomfortable for many of us. And so we have to sit with that discomfort first, sit with that feeling of discomfort Um, And then be curious. I think curiosity for me is huge in this. Curious to understand what biases and discrimination look like for someone else. We may not have experienced it, but the least we can do is to pick up books, to listen to podcasts, to read articles, to watch videos, because there's plenty of resources out there that give us just an insight into a sneak peek into someone else's existence through their intersectional identity. And Chris, you've shared your story in in my book um, and so have 15 others who have been so brave and so vulnerable in sharing their stories, but they give us an insight into what someone else's experience really is, that deep curiosity, right? Um, And then it's about sitting with that humble acknowledgement that I don't know how life is lived like by somebody else. I just don't, and I need to be deeply curious. I think we need to just come to terms with that. Mm. And then we also need to come to terms with the fact that we're all biased. And if we come to terms with these things, then we come to a stage where the unknown doesn't seem so unknown anymore. It is common. We realize everyone is biased. We realize everyone has intersectional identities that they don't understand or engage with or interact with frequently enough. So we're all on this pathway together. Right? And I think mm. with that psychologically safe environment, that helps us to then move forward with actively engaging empathetically when we witness or experience bias. Without this self-work, we've got to work internally first. If we don't do that self-work, it's very hard mm. for us to actually show up when we experience or witness bias. Because we don't know where we're coming from. We don't have the vocabulary. We're not sure. And you're very brave to talk about it. But I can guarantee you that there's probably going to be hundreds of thousands, millions of people who are not comfortable having those conversations. So we have to do the Mm. deep self-work first. And then we can show up in situations to address the bias that we see around us, to nurture, Mm. further nurture that psychological safety as well, and then be... Courageous in our responsibilities of using our power to lift others, to sponsor, to mentor, to make space, but it starts internally. It really, really does. We've got to do a whole lot of work
0: internally. That's why it's so hard. And my favorite question when I'm on kind of the big stages or uh, in conversations with the leadership teams or whatever, I usually just ask yourself one question. How does it look with your group of friends? How diverse are them and start there? And I actually started just like posting a couple of years ago when I did that question to myself. And then I reached out to trans people, for example, like anybody who is trans out there who want to become my friend and learn me to be a better ally. So it's kind of just taking one step and learning to get to know new people that you don't have in a group of friends from before. That is kind of an important first step uh, as connected to what you're saying. But then I wanted to ask you a couple of uh, quick questions in the end here. What's the most exciting things that you are doing right now?
1: Super excited about my new book uh, that's just come out, the Artifact of Active Allyship, which Chris, you're yeah. So this is um, super super exciting. Uh, your copy is uh, is sitting right next to me, ready to be posted out uh, hopefully tomorrow. Uh, so it should be coming your cool. way. And uh, so I'm really excited about that. I've got the official launch in January, so I'm working towards that. I'm really looking forward to 2023 with getting the book out there in. Um, in larger ways. Um, so I'm, I think that's going to be a big focus for me for 2023. I really mm. work company. <laughs> Definitely. Um, you know, to be able to really, you know, get get this content out there. Um, I've also just signed with a publisher to write a book with a colleague of mine at CBS um, called Leading Through Bias. Bias exists everywhere. Mm. You can imagine bias mm. as like, you know, you're walking down as a leader through a hallway of your organization and bias is really everywhere. So how do we empower leaders to be able to lead through bias? Uh, because it is indeed everywhere. So how do we equip them with those skills and tools? So I'm looking forward to that. So I think the first half of the year will also be spent on writing oh. that manuscript, which is due in the in, in Q2 uh, of next year. So those are some of the things I'm super excited about. Um, I'm also looking forward to a bit of a break in December uh, with my family, with my kids and my husband <laughs> uh, to yeah. decompress and, and switch off for a while. It's been an incredible year. 2022 has been so kind to me. Um, and I'm so grateful for everyone who's in my life. Um, I, you know, I, as I was hmm. preparing the guest list and sending the guest list out for my launch event, um, if you would asked me eight years ago before I moved to Copenhagen, what my friend circle looked like, um, I think it was relatively homogeneous. Uh, compared to what it is today with my network of people that I engage mm. with on a regular basis within my work within work, uh, and my, my friend circle as well. And so I'm hugely grateful for the opportunities that the universe has given me. You know, my dad has this, uh, my parents, actually both mom and dad, um, used to use this phrase, expand, expand, expand. Um, and my dad always said that to us, expand your spheres of influence. If if you're here today, think about how you can expand it further. So I look forward to 2023 with continuing to expand my spheres of positive influence um, on on people. And yeah, I'm excited about Mm. that.
0: Cool. And when you inspire so many people, both as an associate professor, in your keynotes, through your books, who are the ones who inspire you?
1: Oh, there's so many people. There are so many people. I think, you know, this particular book, The Art of Active Allyship, has actually, the inspiration lies with all my allies. People who have stood up for me, people who have been my voice when I didn't have a voice, uh, people who have sponsored me and lifted me without me even knowing about it. And there are plenty of such people in my life and I'm hugely grateful for them. Mm. And so um, I have had the fortune of having people who have, Stuck their neck out for me, you know, uh, when other people thought I might be a risky hire um, that they've they've really stood stood for me and and who and, and really vouched for me. And so, you know, I am very lucky that that there's so many people who have been willing to do that. And those are really my inspiration. But I'm also inspired by um Indra Nui who was the CEO of PepsiCo for 13 years she's a mm. huge role model of mine um she comes from a similar South Asian background and understands the nuances and the complexities of a culture uh that we are deeply embedded within um and yet she led an organization for a significant period of time which can't have been easy um and so I recently read her memoir um in December last year, and so she's been a huge. I don't know her personally, uh, but she's been a huge part of my of inspiring me um, yeah. to, to do more, to to want to take this up, but also to be strong. Uh, to to understand that there's even through challenges, there's there are people out there who persevere, so that others like me can have an opportunity. So I'm standing on the shoulders of these really big giants um and trying to do my little little tiny little piece within my own spheres of yeah. influence and expand that so i'm very grateful to all of them
0: Thank you. And a really good tip. I will uh, definitely check uh, her memoirs. Uh, I wanted to read that after you're kind of selling that uh, so brilliantly. The last question that I uh, ask everybody who is on the podcast is like, if there's going to be one thing or an advice to everybody who's listening, what do you believe is needed to create a more regenerative world? So a better world for all of us.
1: Be an active ally. Step up. Find out how you can do it and step up. The time is now. If we wanna see change, each one of us needs to step up. So be the active ally.
0: Thank you so much and thank you for joining Purnima and I really look forward to read your book when that's uh, coming. And then uh, I j- just think I leave this conversation with uh, the topic of courage, both from your allies, from yourself and kind of daring to do what's right and what we believe in. So thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to uh, hear from you again soon.